of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you, the, show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us understand his word this morning. Pray with me, please. Our Father, we thank you for once again allowing us to gather this morning, and we pray that you would help us to understand your word under these unusual circumstances once again. Uh, Lord, uh, this is an odd thing to do, uh, to be separated from each other, and yet to receive the nourishment of your word. Uh, it, it's, it's unusual for us, but you can do miraculous things. You have promised to do miraculous things, and you have promised to transform your people according to your word and by your word. So we pray that you would do that for us today. We are listening to you this morning. Speak to us, please. In Christ's name, amen. Well, forgetfulness. It's inevitable at times during the week that I will forget something. I will receive instructions before leaving the for the office. Don't forget blank. And what happens? In the morning, I will forget blank. At lunch, I'll go home, I'll say my apologies, I'll resolve to not forget whatever it is I'm supposed to remember. And I get home from work, as I pull into the driveway, I remember I've forgotten the thing I was supposed to remember. <laughs> Forgetfulness is very much a part of our fallen condition. So much so that when someone forgets to do something, 
we are fairly quick to forgive it. It's almost like because we see it in ourselves so often that we expect it from others. And of course, there are some things that we know will never be forgotten. I mean, just forget to pay your mortgage one, one month and you'll see that the bank will not soon forget your oversight. And sometimes, though, as much as we forget and as much as we see others forget, sometimes, I think due to our fallen condition, we feel very much forgotten by God. Well, here's what I want to do today. I want us to remember Mephibosheth. And if you don't remember, uh, you can go back and listen to the sermon I preached on March, March 1st uh, regarding Mephibosheth. Let me just quickly remind you of his circumstances. He was the grandson of Saul, King Saul, David's enemy. Of course, David wasn't his enemy, but Saul considered David his enemy. Uh, and, and as he was fleeing for his life, as he was picked up by his nurse, his nurse fell and he became disabled. He couldn't walk any longer. Uh, he had both of his feet, we're told, when he was lame in both of his feet. So when we last saw Mephibosheth, he was a five-year-old boy who was the enemy number one of King David. And we answered the question last time about why he was an enemy of the king, even in his tragic circumstances. Now what remains for us to answer is this question. What will happen to Mephibosheth? Will he be forgotten or will he be remembered? Let me just say, being remembered if you're the enemy of the king is not always a good thing. So here we are. We're going to look at this passage in three different ways. First of all, I want us to see the king's justice. The king's justice. Now, Mephibosheth's story comes within the context of, of David's consolidation of power in Israel's major successes. In chapter 8, the chapter right before this chapter, uh, you know, it lays out for us all of those victories. And because Yahweh was with David, he was able to bring peace to Israel by overcoming and subduing all of the surrounding nations around Israel. And in 8.15, again right before this passage in chapter 8 verse 15, this is what we read. So David reigned over all Israel... And David administered justice and equity to all his people. That in and of itself is an amazing statement because in David's day, as in our day, justice and equity is in short supply, and it was in short supply back then. And it's a rare thing that a king will actually reign justly. There are very few that have done so in the history of in human history. My question, though, for us is, do we really want justice from the king? Let me illustrate that question uh, by pointing you to a, a scene uh, from Shakespeare's Henry V. King Henry's on the verge of invading France, and he discovers a plot by some of his inner circle to assassinate him. He calls those three conspirators in, and he draws them in and he tells them that he has discovered a plot against him to assassinate him 
Only it's not those three men, it's three other men. And he asked those three traitors, what should happen to those men that are plotting against him? And all three quickly agree that the ones plotting to assassinate the king should be executed with extreme prejudice and should be shown no mercy. Well, at that point, King Henry lets the men know that they are the traitors, that he knows of their plot. And what do the men do? Well, understandably, they begin to beg for mercy from the king, mercy that they were not willing to show the other men. What does King Henry do? Well, he treats them according to their own standard. He treats them according to the standard of justice, not mercy. They are brought out and they are quickly executed. What's the point of that illustration? It's simply to help us see that we have a complicated relationship to this whole idea of justice. We know that justice is good and we all desire justice especially when we are treated unfairly. And we live in a world full of people calling for, calling for and screaming for justice. But when it comes to us receiving justice for what we truly deserve, according to what we have done, we don't want justice at all. We want mercy. So what do you really want from the king? Take Mephibosheth here. Here's a man who we look at, and probably in our modern world, in our context, we would say, oh, poor Mephibosheth. You know, he really deserves mercy. But in the ancient world, they would not have understood, understood it that way. They would have understood that for King David to give mercy to his enemy would, would put King David at risk, would put his reign and his kingdom at risk, and inevitably, that would destabilize the, the country if something were to happen to King David by Mephibosheth's hand. And the entire nation would be at risk. And so in the ancient world, they would have called for justice for Mephibosheth, whereas we call for mercy. Well, what they would have expected back then, the justice for Mephibosheth, really makes what King David hears Incredible! What the true king does with his enemy is really, uh, is really wonderful. And it makes you wonder, how is the king going to treat us? So we see, first of all, the king's justice. The king's justice. Secondly, we see the king's kindness. One of my Old Testament professors and my favorite commentator on First and Second Samuel is Dr. Dale Ralph Davis. When he teaches or preaches, he doesn't use an English translation. He knows the Hebrew and the Greek so well that he can read the text in the original language. And he translates it on the spot. It is an impressive thing to see in action. As, as a matter of fact, it was always impressive when my professors would do this. That they knew their Hebrew and Greek so well that they could translate it on the spot. And it was something that was incredibly intimidating as seminary students when we would sit in class with these professors and they would expect or ask for us to do the same thing with less than satisfactory results. Now, I only mention Dr. Davis and his translation skills 
to note that sometimes when he reads his text, that the words he uses to translate from the Hebrew to the English can vary drastically from the words that are typically used in our English translations. For example, when Dr. Davis reads chapter two, or this chapter of 2 Samuel, there is a word that is used three times in this chapter, in verse 1, in verse 3, and in verse 7, uh, that is different. Most translations say, say this in verse, verse 2, uh, like mine, I'm sorry, in verse 1, like mine says. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness, show him kindness? For the sake of David. And you see very much the same thing in 3 and in verse 7. To show kindness. But when Dr. Davis translates this, he says it like this. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him the covenant kindness of Yahweh for Jonathan's sake? Dr. Davis's translation is longer and it seems to contain much more information. What he's doing in that translation, he's highlighting for us, and that highlights for us, what, the fact that King David is using an unusual word to express his desire to show kindness. You see, he isn't merely using, or he isn't merely wanting to show kind of the average sort of kindness, the average sort of human kindness that we might hope a king would show one of his subjects. No, he wants to show the very kindness of God, a covenantal kindness. In Hebrew, this is the word hesed. Now we have to work out two things from this. What is, first of all, the covenantal kindness of Yahweh? And secondly, how does that covenantal, how does Yahweh show that covenantal kindness? So what is covenantal kindness and how does Yahweh show that covenantal kindness? So first of all, what is the covenantal kindness of Yahweh? Well, simply put, it's the sort of commitment that God makes to his people people, in spite of knowing their heart's capacity to run after other gods. Indeed, the story of the Bible is the story of Yahweh's hesed love, his pursuing them and overcoming every obstacle that they put in the way of his love. It's the kind of love that we approximate in our marriage vows when we say, we say these words, I take you to be my spouse for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. There's a reason why when I perform a marriage, I do not let the, the folks getting married write their own vows because you cannot improve upon those vows. That gets to the heart of the kind of thing that we're talking about. In short, it's a promise to be faithful to another one, even when, and perhaps especially when, that one is unfaithful to us. So that is what Yahweh's covenantal kindness is. And second, how, how has Yahweh shown that love, that hesed love, to his people? Well, he overcame their unfaithfulness time and time again. And more recently, in the context of Mephibosheth's story, they wanted Saul, Mephibosheth's grandfather, to be their king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, what Yahweh says is that they have rejected Yahweh as their king. 
See, they have run after other gods. They have run after other kings. And what does God do? What does Yahweh do? For a time, he gave them what they wanted. But eventually, he ran after them, pursuing them with his love. And he gave them King David in order to lavish his people with his love. That's how Yahweh shows his covenantal kindness. Now, there's another spiritual principle that emerges as we look at this episode of the king's kindness and the kind of kindness he wants to show to Mephibosheth. David wants to show the hesed of Yahweh to Mephibosheth. Why does he want to do that? Because David knows personally and intimately the covenantal love that Yahweh has for him He's experienced it in many ways up to this point, namely by taking a no-name nobody out in a field tending some sheep and making him the king over Israel. But also in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we saw that Yahweh promised to build David a dynasty and to make one of his children reign forever and ever and ever. So David wants to do something in chapter 7 for Yahweh, to do something grand for Yahweh, but Yahweh won't let him. And then David understands that Yahweh's covenantal love is love that is one-sided. David gets what he doesn't deserve. The favor of Yahweh. Because Yahweh covenants with David So David wants to reflect that kind of love, that same kind of covenantal love. And he chooses the least likely person to show that kind of love to. He chooses his disabled enemy, Mephibosheth. And here is the spiritual principle. If you have been shown this kind of love, you will show this kind of love. If you have been shown this kind of love, you will show this kind of love. So the second thing we see is the king's kindness. The third thing we see is the king's provision. Our question is, just how far will David go to express this covenantal love? Every four years at the end of the president's term here in the United States, after, you know, or after uh, he's, been, he, he's been reelected uh, or he can't run for office again, he uses his executive power to offer what's called the presidential pardon. Now, presidents have typically used that power to help out people who have helped them out. And the most notable presidential pardon took place when President Gerald Ford pardoned President Nixon of all crimes he may have committed while in office during the Watergate scandal. You see, we expect people in power to treat their friends well. And we are rightly amazed when someone in power treats an enemy well. Well, let's see how well King David treats his enemy, Mephibosheth. There are three things that David provides to his enemy as a way to show the covenantal kindness of Yahweh. The first thing is, David restores all of Saul's lands to Mephibosheth. These are lands that that would have been transferred to David After he became king, David would have rightly received them by virtue of him being the sovereign, being the one in control of the land. 
These would have been lands that would have enriched David, that would have provided for him and for David's family. But what does David do? David gives them back to his enemy in order to enrich his enemy. Second, David gives Mephibosheth servants to work the land for him. He isn't just giving back Mephibosheth the land and saying, good luck handling that in your disability. But he also gives back essentially Mephibosheth a profitable business. In essence, what David does is he's securing Mephibosheth's present well-being, but he's also ensuring Mephibosheth's future prosperity onto even his children and his children's children. And the third thing David provides is constant access to the king. He invites Mephibosheth to live in his palace, to live among him. He invites him into his home and essentially adopts him as one of his own children. This is unheard of kindness. This is the kind of kindness that you don't find out in the world without some supernatural interference. But here it is. David has experienced Yahweh's covenantal kindness to himself. And he shows the same overwhelming one-way kindness to Mephibosheth. He does so by sacrificing his own well-being, giving exorbitantly, and even welcoming his enemy into his own family. And here's the thing. It points us to the better King David. It points us to Jesus Christ, who we're told in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11 this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God, By the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. David offered reconciliation to Mephibosheth to no longer be his enemies. And he did that by sacrificing his well-being for giving up what was rightly David's over to Mephibosheth for essentially laying down his right as the king and welcoming Mephibosheth into his home. Let me conclude in this way. At the end of the chapter, we're told this in verse 13. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet, as if we could forget that kind of detail. Of course, we know he was lame. It's an odd thing to put at the end of this story. But it's almost as though the author wants to remind us that though Mephibosheth has been raised up and restored and reconciled by David, that all of his troubles have not gone away. 
And we will see in one more sermon regarding Mephibosheth that his remaining disability will put him at odds with the king once again. But it also certainly is a reminder to us that the king's love doesn't extend to those who need it the least, but to those that need it the most. Yahweh's love for us is so great that he raises and restores us in his loved one, or he raises and restores his loved ones because of his covenantal kindness. It's not that we have done something for him. It's not that we can do anything for him that he loves us to begin with. And it's not that we will continue to earn his favor or his love that he continues to show us his kindness. He looks at poor, wretched sinners like us. And he raises us from our pitiful and sinful estate. And he welcomes us into his own to eat at his table like one of his sons. He provides for us, and we're told in the New Testament this, in Acts chapter 2, verse 39, the promise is for you and for your children and for, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. You are called today to come and receive the restoration and the reconciliation of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life, in his death, in his resurrection for you. You are called to eat at the table of the king. Will you come today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this message. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to continue to live in the light of your covenant. That we would not think that we do this by our own might, by what we have been able to accomplish. But we do this because of your great love, because of your covenantal kindness, your one-way love. Lord, help us also as we experience that and as we have experienced that, if we are yours by faith, help us to then go and to show that kind of love to anyone we may come in contact with. Help us to do these things by your spirit and help us remember always and not to forget the covenantal kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name.